So if you heard the uh, New Testament reading this morning and the service, it was about the kingdom of God, and uh, we're talking about the kingdom of God today. So I thought that was quite interesting, how those two lined up, but we'll talk about it more, that passage, in two weeks when we hit 19. Um, but this week we're on Luke 17, verses 20 through 37. There's a lot to unpack here. Some of it's confusing. We're going to break it down, I promise. Um, junior high leaders, see me right after before we go into transformation groups, so I can give you one or two pointers for that. So this is what it says. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things to be rejected by his generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. But on that day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop and his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, and one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where is the corpse? Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So, what? So a lot happening there. So the first section I've kind of labeled it in your breakdowns tonight is it's almost here. It's almost here. So Stephen and I just finished his first chapter book this week. It kind of blows my mind that he wanted to do that. Uh, we did C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, in the story of Narnia... Um, Narnia has been in perpetual winter for ages. Mr. Beaver comments that it hasn't been spring since even before his father was alive. Yet what made this winter so awful? What was it? I mean, some people love winter. That's why people live in like Alaska and Maine and other places of the country where they like snow on the ground for eight months of the year. What is it that makes this winter so awful? Well, if you remember correctly, it's because it's always winter, but then for Christmas. That's what made it so awful. After Lucy and Edmund had appeared in Narnia for the first time, it was seen as a sign of things to come for the mysterious world in the wardrobe. After Lucy and Edmund returned with their brother and sister, Peter and Susan, it was discovered that Aslan was on the move, that they were to meet him at the stone table, and signs of his return began to become very evident to the people of Narnia. On their way to the table, they hear a sleigh, or sledge, as they call it. Coming, and they all hide, thinking it's the White Witch. Only for Mr. Beaver to discover that it's Father Christmas, or as we would call him, Santa. <laughs> Narnia was thawing. Christmas had come. As the White Witch races to intercept the children before they reach the stone table, her sleigh gets stuck in the mud because the snow has disappeared, and her dwarf companion remarks that it isn't just thawing, it's actually spring. Aslan is on the move, and the impact of the story can already be felt by those who are looking for it. 
to those who are anticipating his arrival. Israel here is in a very similar place. Fervor for the Messiah is at an all-time high. According to first century documents discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, people were looking for a Messiah. And they believe that the prophecy of Daniel 2 was almost at an end. Turn with me to Daniel 2, because it is a large chunk. It's one of my favorite sections of scripture as a history teacher. Um, But I do want us to read it. It, Again, it is large. I apologize. We're going to be Daniel 2, 31. It's just really interesting. This is what they believe is being fulfilled, and I believe was fulfilled with Christ's coming. Daniel 2. If you don't know where Daniel is, there should be a table of contents at the beginning of your Bible. And Daniel is spelled Dan-eel. You should get it. I-E-L. And Daniel 2. You still flipping? Some of you? I'm going to start reading. Thank you. Daniel 2, verses 31 through 46. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, so this is Daniel interpreting for Nebuchadnezzar his dream. Okay, he's been called before the king. Daniel's like, I can interpret dreams. We've seen this before in the Old Testament with a guy named Joe. Um, Seems to happen with guys that are in foreign places. They seem to be dream interpreters. Joseph, Egypt, fun times, cupbearer, baker. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, the image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, and its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them, you are the head of gold. Talk about, like, here's your ego. I mean, he's essentially given him all the titles of the rulers of the world. He's given him the titles here. You, O king, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom, inferior to you, shall rise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of honor, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of feet were partly with soft clay, so they will be mixed with another, another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. A great God has made known to the king, What shall be after this? The dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure. 
I could spend a lot of time summarizing this because I used to teach world history and we used to jump back to this verse all the time as we covered the first really half the year when we talked about history. So to summarize, the time, the time of the statue's destruction was thought to be at hand. The Jews looked at the prophecy in Daniel 2 and they're like, we're living in the time of iron and clay. The reason they thought that is because Nebuchadnezzar was the first empire. This was the first empire in Persia. Soon followed after that. Then Greece, when Alexander the Great came to the Jerusalem, was the third empire of bronze. What type of shields do the Greeks use? Bronze. Oh, very interesting. Okay, this is a cool story. When it said that when Alexander the Great marched up to Jerusalem, the Jews didn't even put up a fight. They went out to meet him on the bridge on the way to Jerusalem, and they said, Hey, um, you're the guy in Daniel 2. We've been expecting. You're the third kingdom. Really gave, like, Alexander the Great, who already had a big ego, an even bigger ego. He went, Yes, I am a man of prophecy. He thought, like, for sure, now I can take out everybody else. And then after Greece, the Roman kingdom, the Iron Kingdom, would soon follow. Um, And they were the last kingdom to be established for God. And it has arrived, the kingdom of God. This is the state of the world that they're living in. All the way to this point in Luke, Jesus has slowly been moving towards Jerusalem. There has been this sense of movement throughout the whole story. And it speeds up here in chapter 17 through 19. Jesus' time before the final battle is coming to an end, much like the movement of Aragon on his way to Minas Tirith, or Luke before his confrontation with Vader, or Simba's final return to Pride Rock. The last act is bound to play out, and everything moves swiftly from here on out. There is anticipation building. It really is written like a really good film. The story is moving forward. And the culture anticipates that this should happen. The text anticipates that this will happen. Even if both the culture and the disciples at this point don't understand, though, how it will actually play out. Narnia is thawing. Spring has arrived. The king is about to take the throne. But it will not be the earthly throne of David. Gabriel's message to Mary is about to unfold from Luke chapter 1. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. That's the first chapter of Luke. He would destroy all the kingdoms. He would open his kingdom to all. His tour throughout the countryside to different people groups has proved that he has said what he said in chapter 4, verse 43. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. That is the purpose of Christ as he's come forward. Everything up to this point in Luke points to the moment when Jesus takes his throne at Calvary. And everything in the book of Acts points back to this moment as well. But what is the kingdom of God? Where is the kingdom of God? These are two questions asked by both the Pharisees and his disciples in this section, which leads me to the second area. The kingdom of God is now and the future. This is verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So you've got to remember this. This is just Jewish history. For years... Really since the Maccabees, which we'll talk about the Maccabees at another point. We did when we covered Judaism before Jesus a year and a half ago. That's the Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Hanukkah. 
For years, Pharisees and the people of Jerusalem had followed different people who claimed to be the Messiah. There were people before Jesus who said, I'm that guy. Mm -hmm. I'm him. Follow me. You know what happened? They all died. They were crushed at the hand of the Roman Empire or sometimes involving some of their own people. They were crushed. They died. Um, The kingdom would not come the way that they thought it would. That's what the Pharisees, that's what the people of Jerusalem thought. He's going to remove the Romans from power. That's why they're so excited on Palm Sunday to lay down the robes and lay down their palms. Victory has come. Romans, get out. They're excited. This is what they think will happen. Rather, the kingdom of God came in a manger. And it would come at the edge of three nails. It came when the Messiah was born. And it would come by the death of the Messiah to free them from the power greater than Rome. What's the power greater than Rome? Their sin. That's what this king is coming to free them from. Soon it will come again to establish, soon he will come again to establish his final seat on earth when he returns. So the kingdom of God, is the, so is the kingdom of God present? Yes. And later. I think of the term, and there's more, and there's more behind the curtain. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of, is a person. He is not a time like the Pharisees are referring to. He is not a place like the disciples are at the end of the section. Uh, when they said to him, where, Lord? The kingdom of God is present. He is performing miracles. All these disciples and Pharisees just saw in the previous section, which we didn't read, Jesus healed ten lepers, but they still don't get it. They're still assuming, because of the prevailing cultural narrative, that the kingdom will be a king much like David's, who overthrows the rulers of the land and literally rules from the throne of David on earth. They do not understand that the kingdom will be an eternal kingdom, that he will sit on David's throne, but it would be from heaven. So, is the kingdom of God here? Yes. Thank you, Ian. Yes. Christ reigns, but he doesn't reign like he will reign in the world to come. We have scriptures that point to this even greater victory, but the disciples didn't have the full scriptures at the time. They didn't write them for the next, you know, five to 50 years. Revelation eleven fifteen. what does it say? Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. We see in the last chapter of the Bible, as John describes it, chapter 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The kingdom of God is here and currently resides on the throne in heaven. And we can cover this on a whole different other topic too. It resides on the throne of heaven, but it resides here too. It literally resides in our hearts. Christ is in us and we are in Christ. There is a sense that we, in a sense, stand before Christ before the throne too. 
The king has come. Long live the king. As we're especially here now ministers on the earth. So how do we live a life of anticipation? How do we live a life of anticipation? So knowing that the king is here, the question becomes, how shall we live? Jesus deals with this directly in the passage as he refers to Old Testament stories and the disciples would be familiar with. This is the part that I know for many of you, especially for some of you, maybe you're in junior high where you're like, what? Like, what are you talking about here? I'm not, I don't get it. So we're going to read through it again. This is again, um, Luke 17, 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Who is who? Who's the Son of Man? Jesus. Jesus. Good job. Good job. Sunday school. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given a marriage until that day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Really happy image. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling, planting and building. But on that day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be when the day of the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on his house stop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? She did turn back, turn to salt. Yeah. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. And there will be two women grinding together and one will be taken and another left. Again, Jesus is building in anticipation. The days of Noah and the days of Lot were normal days. They were normal days. You know what's a normal day? He spells it out. Every day you typically eat. You might have a drink of water. Right? Um, there are buying, selling, planting, built, normal day. There will be people sleeping and there will be people grinding milk together for the day's bread. Normal activities will take place in the days of the Lord. Normal activities will be taking place when Jesus dies on the cross and when Jesus rises from the dead. And normal activities will be taking place when Jesus returns once more. It'll just be a normal day. So why does Jesus rescue one and not the other in the passage? Why does one person sleep in and one person who's making bread suddenly vanish? This is a quote from um, the commentary by Joel B. Green. He says this, Whether one is engaged in everyday pursuits is not the basis for judgment. That has nothing to do with, well, you're just living your life normally, so clearly you're not of the Lord's. That's not the reason for judgment. Both are sleeping, both are grinding mill, both are rescued while the other is caught up in the calamity of judgment. At stake is the nature of one's disposition, one's commitments, and one's attachments, and one's ultimate loyalty. The difference between the person who escapes the coming destruction and the one left behind is the passage is that they are anticipating the kingdom of God. They are living a life of anticipating the kingdom of God. It is not that they aren't participating in daily life. It's not that they're like, no, 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 we're not going to do those things anymore. They're beneath us. Eating, drinking, selling, buying. Those things we don't do anymore. Those are for the low man. No, you're to do those things. But you're to do them with heaven in mind. With realizing that there is a purpose to even normalcy. They have a kingdom mindset. Mindset. So what is a kingdom mindset? What is a kingdom mindset? So let's look at what we talked about for the last couple of months. 
Okay? A kingdom mindset has been demonstrated to you for the last 17 chapters. Okay? So here's the first one. It's your first fill in the blank. And that is seeing people the way the king sees people. Seeing people the way the king sees people. Over and over again, the Pharisees put labels on people. Sinner, tax collector, adulterer. (gasps) They put labels. Likewise, we put labels on people because it's just easier to categorize them than it is to minister and care about them. It is not treating someone as a sinner without hope of salvation, but a sinner in need of a savior. That's the huge difference. We treat people like, you're a sinner, I just can't. Can't deal. We can't be friends. You're so screwed up. I, on the other hand, am much better off. You know? No. It is treating people as a sinner in need of a savior, just like you are a sinner in need of a savior. It's the same way we want to be treated, and it's the way we should be treating each other as a church community. Remember, we are a hospital for sinners. We are not a country club for saints. We are a hospital for sinners. We are not a country club for saints. Two, it's seeking out the lost. We spent a whole week on the lost coin and the lost sheep. Likewise, many of you know the parable of the lost son. Over and over again, throughout Luke, Jesus is moving towards the poor, the marginalized, those who have been cast aside by the culture, the woman at the well, the leper, the demon-possessed man, the tax collector, the fisherman. Over and over and over again, Jesus seeks. Jesus seeks. Will you seek? Three, use the gifts God has given you. 1 Corinthians 12.27 says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We are called to act, work, and proclaim in places and in ways that God has planted us and gifted us. Notice, I want to make sure you miss this too, because I think a lot of you high schoolers miss this. You are called to act, work, and proclaim in the places and ways that God has planted us and gifted us. I think it's real easy, especially well, just as Christian people, well, God has planted me in the wrong place. If I was only at this college or if I was just homeschooled, or if I was just public schooled, or if I was just yada, yada, yada. There's the Seinfeld reference. I got one in. Okay? If I was just whatever, then I could be used by God. Stop. Help you. <laughs> no. God has you planted places for a reason. Look up. When you look down, you're like all inward and like, I'm sad, I can't do anything. Look up, look around, get to work. God has you planted places for a reason. Even if you might not like him in that season. Four, I always say this when I was coaching soccer. Eyes on the prize, eyes on the prize, eyes on the prize. They hated me because I said that phrase so much. It was one of the things that just drove them nuts. Said so score goals, that's what wins games. Eyes on the prize. The prize here is not soccer goals, it is Christ. We don't follow him out of guilt or fear. We follow him because to act like a Christian is to act the way God intended us to act all the time. When we don't act like Christ, we are shackled to the sins of the world. We are bound to them. 
when we have our eyes on the prize. Only then can we live freely. I say it all the time. It's the difference between the son who mows the yard for his father, hoping that his father will say, I love you, and the son who mows the yard for his father, knowing that he already does. There's a huge difference in heart distinction and just the way you're focused and kind of relating to the Lord. It's this, Father loves me, therefore I will do the work of the Father. The prize is glory. The prize is Christ. And we are given that now. And we will be given more of it when we reach the kingdom of heaven in the future.